0: Listener production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders, and for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public, so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So, with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the 4th and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, a leading officer involved in Operation Ironside, a secretive job, in collaboration with the FBI.
1: couldn't declare it. You couldn't talk about it. You couldn't sit in the cafe and talk about Ironside or what a good job last night.
0: Chris Craner is one of Australia's most experienced tactical operators. He's been involved in some of the country's most intense and high-stakes investigations.
1: The AFP are very good at need-to-know and security clearances, and it is, in fact, called need-to-know.
0: To begin... We're stepping back to Chris's time in the New South Wales Police. He's just been appointed as staff officer to the Deputy Commissioner of Operations and is sitting in a counter-terrorism briefing when he hears sirens and is alerted to the infamous Lint Cafe siege.
1: All of a sudden there was phones going off and there was silence and everyone had stopped talking to each other. And you'd sit there and you go, What's going on? Next thing, someone would have read their message quick and went, There's a bloke with a bomb. Uh, and it looks like there might be other devices around the city, being the Opera House and I think Town Hall Railway Station. So, you know, it was quite eerie to be in a counterterrorism phone call and then hear that saying, There's someone with a bomb in the city. And it would have been probably a minute later than that. And I was sitting in William Street in the city in police headquarters sitting up nice and high, literally, you know, a stone's throw away from uh, Limp Cafe. And and in my old world, I'll be busting to get out the door and run down there straight away, but probably being there as a chief of staff and being more strategic. But what was eerie, you could hear the sirens. And as you heard the sirens, you thought, that's our staff heading off to this. And we go to sieges all the time. I've been to many sieges at at a variety of different ranks and, and different outcomes. But this siege just seemed different. It was just weird that it happened during a CT meeting. It was eerie sitting up on a 14th floor of a building in the city and listening to all the sirens going and not knowing what they were going to face when they got there.
0: So this is at the very early stages of the Lynn Cafe siege and you'll be getting some information that's starting to come through, obviously, to those around the table. Where's that information coming from? Who's providing that information in these early stages that you're then acting upon?
1: Look, at that stage, the first thing we do, once you've confirmed the trucks are on, on site, general duties are there they'll confirm there's a siege um you know everyone knows to go straight into what back then was container negotiate and fundamentally that changed after Lynn's siege with a almost shoot to kill power so to speak but let's go back to container negotiate when the police turn up they go through a chain of command they'll tell the radio room that it's a siege there's person inside there's hostages the radio room will then put out notifications and we'll all get notifications and i remember running out of the room and grabbing the deputy who was an acting deputy jeff loy at the time and giving him a briefing on what was going on and straight away we go into emergency management. So at that stage it was in central metro area and Mick Fuller was the assistant commissioner for central metro. So the beast gets rolled out, Mick Fuller sets up his team and a command and control team go into the Sydney operations centre and they take over command and control of the whole operation as an emergency management event. And that's what it's classified at that time. So... You know, my role was just briefing back to the deputy saying we've got the chain of command, we've got command and control set up, this is the officer in charge, this is the forward command, so you would have to find a place down near the scene where there'd be a forward command post. And then that's kind of normally where it stays at deputy at, at, at deputy level. The AC runs it, being that this one was completely different. Um, you know, we ended up in the state crisis centre with the Premier and the Commissioner a little bit further on, but at that stage we're just getting updates. And as soon as there's an update... There's a hint of counterterrorism. Then the deputies get together with the commissioner. They go through a pre-formatted questionnaire, which then says, "Okay, stop. This is no longer a uh, emergency management event. This is a counterterrorism event." And at that stage, when they make that decision, then we have to change command and control. A whole new beast comes in, and that was when Assistant Commissioner Mark Murdoch came in with his counterterrorism team. They take over the event and they run the event.
0: The information that's coming out is there are numerous other locations around Sydney where there could have been explosives and things such as that. Is is, is this what then creates that counterterrorism type category?
1: Yeah, again, it comes down when they do the classification and, and a whole range of factors, whether that's environmental or the, the person themselves. I think fairly earlier on from memory there was an ISIS flag, so that would obviously flag it. But, yeah, so definitely at the time when there was... Um, Additional devices alleged to have been all around the city, then that certainly you know went from okay, this is not Joe Blow having a uh, domestic, or this is not a stick up gone wrong. This is a coordinated event, which looks more like a counterterrorism type thing. So even before, if there was you know the flag, if there was before that, you're right, a coordinated event like that would, would raise uh, issues with counterterrorism.
0: Where are you now, then, as things are starting to
1: uh, are starting to roll? So as the day went on, you know, it looked like this was, you know, we were going to bed in and this was going to take some time. So I think uh, we might have handed over to someone separate at the State Crisis Centre. Jeff Lowe and I went for a drive and went down to the rugby club, which was commandeered by some staff down there and made the police forward command. And it was quite eerie because there was was a buzz. There was people running around everywhere, you know, staff changing over from uh, point duty, meals getting organised. And I remember opening up a, a broom closet it wasn't even as big as a broom closet and there was two or three negotiators there with headphones on and they were having a live discussion with the hostages and it was amazing just to look in and see everything could buzz outside these calm collected individuals in a literally a broom closet negotiating and you just look at them go they are the first point of contact talking to those hostages at the moment like what's going on that phone is is amazing um I remember when we finally, you know, the, the biggest thing we had to find out who was it because that would then assist us to try to find what the intent is in regards to confirming it's counterterrorism terrorism or bring it back to emergency management, who was the person inside and uh, eventually when, you know, I remember diving through every bit of information I could, taking phone calls from people and then it eventually came out that it was Man Monis and they looked up his criminal history and antecedents and intelligence which confirmed it was staying as a CT event but the, the focus really was who's the offender.
0: So, Chris, we're at a stage now where the siege has been going all day. Uh, it looks like it's going to be pushing through the night into the into the wee small hours. What happens to you then? Do you stick around? Do you go home? What does someone in your role do at that point?
1: Yeah, it was it was quite fluent. We were trying to work out, do we go in? Do we use the cover of darkness? Do we take lights out? What's the best situation? And it was uh, deemed at that stage, because that's what we did was control. So it was made the decision. I was stood down probably about midnight. Deputy said to me, look, go get a hotel, stay close by, I'll call you if I need you. And I think even the commissioner had gone home, deputy decided to stay through the night and, and a skeleton staff. I rang a, a mate of mine who was an inspector at the city who was driving around in a marked car and grabbed him for a coffee because I wasn't ready to sleep after being through the day we'd been through. Sat down, had a coffee, then went to get to the hotel and thought I haven't got any change of clothes, so undies, socks, toothbrush. Uh, I went to a Seven Eleven on Oxford Street and got what I could. Went to the hotel, put the TV on to watch a bit of it And then literally got changed, jumped into bed. I was in bed probably five minutes. Then the deputy rang up and said, get back to the office, go and get the other deputy, Kath Byrne. Building's been stormed, shots have been fired, people are dead and injured, get back. That was it. And that was a different feeling, Uh, you know, driving to that state crisis centre and getting in there and then getting a briefing off the deputy about, you know, I walked in and went, what the f*** happened? What's happened? Um, You know, and the deputy's just explained he's had a shot. We've got two that we know that are dead. SPG have uh, uh, state protection group has stormed the building. There's been flashbangs, shot fired, and there's people injured. And that's as much as you knew at that stage. And that progressed. Then in the next you know hour or so, you watch them all come back in, and you look at their faces. The commissioner came in, the commissioner's staff came back in, the premier comes back in, the police minister comes back in, and maybe you know two hours later or what it was, they were having a briefing, and we sat outside the briefing room just so we could hear what was going on in the briefing room, but operationally we could also hear what was going on so we could be dual reporting. And I remember a conversation where um, there was briefing to the the Premier, and he obviously was quite upset that people had been injured, and it was a com- comment made there that it might be friendly fire, and the Premier didn't know what that was until it was explained that the shots might have been ours. And that was just another game changer of a, another point of the night where someone's realized gone, shit, I didn't think of that. Like, you know, you, you think if shots are fired, the offender's done it. But at early on that stage, we couldn't discount the fact that there were friendly fire and then people may have been injured by the cops themselves. So if
0: I could, Chris, just to circle back to that point where, and I, this information's coming through pretty thick and fast as you walk into that meeting, but... Shots were fired, they believe, by Monis within the cafe at some point, and that's led to the um, members of the SPG, the State Protection Group, storming into the cafe, and then there's uh, an exchange of gunfire. Is that, Am I reading that correctly? Yep. Yeah. And in that exchange of gunfire, my understanding is man Monis was, was shot by police and I think passed away at the scene. And there were, was it one or two other of the hostages that also, maybe through ricochet or something like that, were injured?
1: I think it's it's quite well-known. You know, Tori Johnson was executed by Monis at the time. Uh, Katrina Dawson was shot and killed. And then uh, there are others there also injured. And uh, Louisa Hope was also injured from fragments. Um, at that stage, I, I can't remember now, but uh, they were fragments or ricochets or direct hits. But I'm pretty sure it's, uh, you know, the public record is Katrina Dawson was terribly shot by the police and Louisa Hope was shot by ricochets, whether they be ours or the offenders.
0: Louisa Hope, who you mentioned as one of the hostages, is a person that um, you've remained friends with since that incident and, and, I, and I believe is a huge advocate for the police and has a very unique view of this whole siege, of course, being one of the people on the inside looking out.
1: Yeah, a lovely lady. We've stayed friends texting each other through personal matters, through work matters. She's just a lovely lady that has come back and I wouldn't say, forgiven's not the word, but she has forgiven because she never held any ill will towards him in the first place. But she went back and met the state protection group. Um, She's met the people that may have shot her and she speaks highly about the police and she does uh, motivational speaking and she does talk to events where the police are. She's just an amazing lady.
0: If there was a Lint Cafe siege today in Sydney, what are the key differences as to how that would be
1: handled? Yeah, I think the, the legislative powers and the powers that the police now have in regards to either contain and negotiate, or in a counterterrorism incident like that one, if there's more imminent danger, police have the chance, have the opportunity, and they can take a shot. Then, under direction, they'll get told to take that shot. It's, it's literally—I can't remember the name of the power. I worked so much on it when I was in the commissioner's office, but I try and forget a lot of things. But effectively, it was named by shoot-to-kill powers, um, which where they can take the target out. Normally, you know, unless there's a imminent threat to your life or serious injury or danger to someone or yourself, you you can um, shoot or take whatever means necessary. This was more preemptive, so I thought if Lynch siege happened now, it would be more preemptive and a preemptive shot, and the, the job would be over quicker, and there'd be better collaboration. Which was obviously a criticism as well. There'd be a lot better collaboration with a high risk incident like that with uh, other partner agencies. I understand that um, in your role, you had
0: a meeting the following morning with, amongst others, possibly members of the State Protection Group who were there to uh, to storm the cafe. That must have been an interesting discussion to have with uh, members of that group.
1: Yeah, and it was a good call by the deputy, Jeff Loy, who, you know, as we left the state crisis centre, you know, I thought it was uh, time to start heading south and, and head home. But um, we were such on a high. We went to go get a coffee and we the boss goes, let's go see the team. And he'd organised to go and meet the state protection guys that actually stormed the building. So we went in there. They all got corralled into a, uh, a meeting room and um, Jeff had a chat to them. And just obviously you for the work they had done. But as I looked around the room, I saw a mate of mine who actually had blood and wounds on his face. And I later found out, I went up and said to him, mate, what happened? And he said, I, I copped fragments at the time and I was shot as I went in. So I think he was shot with fragments from Monis as he entered the building. So I didn't realize at that time that he was there during the whole siege. So for me, it was kind of, you know, a bit more personal going far out, mate. You know, you were there all night. I was there all night. I didn't know you were there. And even interesting that when you, there's people who you don't know were there, I think once the event was over, the commissioner came out and said that his wife and daughter were actually in the Lint Cafe prior to it uh, being taken over by Monas. So that was something the commissioner held tight to his chest that uh, that his wife and daughter were in there. So there was a connection for all of us there, you know. And the, the good thing out of it, um, you know, we, we learned a lot, we got new powers. Um, and you know, i got a great friend out of Louisa Hope, and, and so did New South Wales Police Force for what she does to us.
0: When you're watching these things from afar, as 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 folks do, you know TV. It was almost like 28, 24 hour coverage. I mean, it happened right across the road from Channel Seven, literally. And you look at police like your State Protection Group, and you look at them going into a location like that. And and to the outside looking in, they're, they're almost quite robotic. They're, they're almost like stormtroopers from Star Trek or something. You know, they've got all the gear on and the night vision goggles if they're wearing them, and in they go. But it's easy to forget that that inside all of that gear, like with the riot police, and inside that there's you know there's people who, is, who are husbands, they're possibly wives, some of them they're um, their fathers, their sons, daughters, and that can easily be lost, I think, in something like this. It's um, when you're looking at it from the outside, and it's just interesting, Chris, that you speak about that that personal connection that you had with one of those uh, S.P.G. guys.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in a, an emergency action. I've been them myself where you just make the decision, we're going in. You'll boot a door in and you'll go in. You don't think about what you're saying there about the family and that I'm a husband on this and the other. But these poor buggers had to sit around for so long and, and they were prepared so many times to go in. They wanted to go in, but a number of them actually text home and said goodbye. They thought it was over. They thought they were going into a live bomb. So they knew they were going to have to go in at some point, but they had so much time to sit around and wait and think about it. As opposed to just it's happened, get in there, go. Um, so that's what the mind games for them, and, and to then let them go through those mind games, and then you watch them on TV and see them robotic, that's how professional they were. They put all that aside, game on, helmet on, in we go. And, uh, you know, hats off to them.
0: Chris, if we can move forward to two thousand and nineteen, Operation Ironside. This is a, a joint operation with uh, with the FBI with regards to creating a um, a, a handset to be used uh, to listen to criminal activity. Chris, you had some quite high level involvement in this. Can you can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I was um, seconded down to the AFP to do a job for the commissioner and to to bring a single point of contact into the AFP nationally and internationally and also do some work around his office and or at that time looking back at it now although I was in the commissioner's office I had no idea what Operation Ironsight was I wasn't briefed in the AFP are very good at need to know and security clearances and it is in fact called need to know I just didn't need to know basically so I was not told anything about Ironsight a couple of months later I was then the assistant commissioner at Western Central Command and that encompasses Western Australia, South Australia, Northern Territory, and it's um, you know responsible and oversight for drug importation, counterterrorism, child exploitation, counterterrorism response to the airports at those states, and also the security and management of the defence um, secret American bases between Exmouth, Geraldton, and Pine Gap. So it's quite a fair chunk of Australia. And um, even initially, again, I still wasn't briefed into Ironsighted I'd been over to Canberra and someone had mentioned something to me and said, you know, in a, in a secure location and I had the clearances that we need to brief you properly about Ironside. About a month later, I heard the word again pop up and it was like this secret word that very rarely popped up. If it did, it was in a dark, dingy place and I thought, I've got to find out more about this. So I was then fully briefed into Ironside, which as we know is that long-term covert investigation into transnational and serious organised crime and, and that was responsible for, you know, large crime imports, drug importations and attempts to kill between organised crime groups, really. So, you know, what I learned was that it was a three-year operation that the AFP had been doing with the FBI, and it was happening predominantly on the East Coast, but the West Coast was being briefed in because there were jobs over in the West Coast. As soon as the crooks would talk on the platform, wherever that location was, that they were going to do something, then there'd be a notification made, so I had to be notified of what was going on, and we had a response team as well. Adelaide has obviously got some... uh, uh, high areas of organised crime and, and there was a, a fair focus. There was more more work in South Australia than there was in Western Australia for for the Ironside. So we just literally get a phone call saying, here's some information. That's about as much as you're going to get. Uh, there's been a tear line in the information. There is I remember one job, $6 million sitting in a house, but you can't say it's come from Ironside. You can't reveal the source where it's come from because we can't burn the platform because the platform's going so well that you're just going to have to work out so there's legal ways around the fact that we worked out surveillance and a whole range of different things, that enough information for us to legally obtain a search warrant, boot the door in, get the $6 million out. And I remember talking to counterparts in Waipole going, mate, how'd you get that? And I went, oh, just good police work. There was a lot of just good police <laughs> work going on because we couldn't declare. It was hard. You know, it's some good friends that you couldn't, you couldn't declare it. And you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't sit in a cafe and talk about Ironside or what a good job last night. we got six mil because even some of the troops doing those warrants didn't know where the information had come from. You know, we started getting more and more jobs where, and and COVID was on at the time, where money wasn't leaving the country or the state. We were being told about uh, locations in an hour or two's time where they'll be digging up holes and in parks north of Perth, throwing a couple million dollars in there, and then a couple of hours later, someone else would turn up and take it. And one job that we we watched, we knew it was going to happen, so we watched them dig it in, put the money in. We went up there an hour later and took it and we put a camera up there hidden and watched the next person turn up. Quite excited to pick up their next couple of million dollars out of the dirt, but uh, we'd already taken it. And uh, to watch them dig around in 35 degree heat was hilarious to see this poor bugger sit there trying to dig up half of the national park to get his money out, which wasn't there anymore. You know, my past life, uh, especially in the King's rice Drug Unit, New Sea Work, I was an expert in evidence in court for decoding drug books you'd find a drug book and you'd see a word and i'd have to decode that to say this is what it means in real world this was just straight up does anyone want me to anyone want a kilo does anyone want a kilo of coke does we're going to bash this person we're going to go kill this person there was it was just straight up there was photos like you're in a drug book it was encoded so you couldn't know what they were talking about the delay person wouldn't know there was so much confidence in this platform that they would literally you know the commissioner mentioned it just Showing their their wrongdoings to each other, that made it quite easy for us to pick them off individually.
0: With that sort of uh, intelligence, even though it's as you mentioned before, it's kept very, very tightly, very in close on a need to know basis. How do you prevent some of that or any of that sort of getting out? Because it's a big ask, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. It was kept tight. Like I said, when when I turned up, you know, I went in there as an acting assistant commissioner, and then I was made assistant commissioner. I still didn't get briefed in properly. I remember at the time we had to do a few jobs. There was a a, a drug manufacturer we knew that was going on in South Australia. We didn't have the resources in the AFP to deal with it at the time and we needed some separation that it wasn't the AFP to undertake it so it doesn't look suspicious and we had to ring up and brief in uh, SAPOL to get them and go and do the job. But again, we couldn't declare where it was and if we couldn't get the right information out to get a warrant, then there would have been another discussion of what do we do, how do we stop it. But that was handed over to, to Sapo, and I think Sapo had said afterwards, we wonder where you kept getting all this information from. You're just giving us all these good jobs. And you know, the commis- commissioner mentioned it in his um, press conference. There was 20 threat to kills. So once you know that, these devices for three years were being listened to live, there was a team hidden away listening to everything, and there was some artificial intelligence used. And there was a list if the, certain words that were picked off and a threat to kill was, um, was benchmarked. And there was a couple of jobs in South Australia where an outlaw motorcycle gang was going to steal a motorbike, take a high-power weapon, go down the main street of Adelaide and um, shoot a number of offenders. So we'd have to ring up SAPOL. And at that stage, I don't think we'd brief too many people in. By that stage, I, I believe we'd managed to brief one of the assistant commissioners and say, we can't tell you everything, but we need to tell you this. We have to stop it. And, and those sort of things were starting to happen more and more regular. And we were starting to tell more and more people. And I think it just came to its end of its life. I think around that June, when they decided to pull the pin and stop Ironside and do the arrest phase, that there were some, certainly some legislative requirements by the FBI when the warrants had to expire and finish up. But I think our, our life at that stage, we'd have to involve too many people. There was too many jobs coming out of it. That as soon as the offenders were arrested and they had to go to court and we had to declare a whole lot of more information at court than it would have. Uh, you know unstuck iron and you know it led to 224 arrests 526 charges 3.7 tons of, of drugs 104 weapons i think i had nine high powered in, in western australia 45 million dollars in cash seized plus the assets on top of that and then the threat to kill so you know i, I remember doing the press conference and a journal just goes how, how do you explain it i said well mate imagine if i put a a hot device, a, a mobile phone that I could listen to you in your back pocket and what I would learn in 24 hours. That's what it was, basically. <laughs> yeah, for three years. Yeah, for three years. Yeah, so, you know, I said that at the time when I did the press conference with uh, the two commissioners from AFP and Western Australia, uh, they outsmarted, they played the long game. They, we broke their communications back. There is a massive dint in the market at this time and, and that's where I try and bring it back to the human side and say, these people don't give a shit about you. You know the offenders don't care. You work hard. You work three or four days, three or four jobs a week to pay your mortgage, to buy your holidays, to buy your cars. These crooks are just dealing in your money. They're selling to your family. The amount of accidents that are caused on roads because of drugs, and then if you you go to the hospital tomorrow, and I've tried to humanise it when I do interviews and say oh, there's a massive waiting list. Oh, there's been a there's been a car accident. You have to wait three hours. Car accident. You know, at the moment there's a lot of drug driving those drugs that come from somewhere you know it's just trying to get that human thing If here's your chance when you're going to knock on the door and go get your drugs we've probably locked that person up during hindsight here's your chance to actually go i'm going to stop i'm going to go try and get some help i'm going to talk to someone and try and bring those other agencies in to to make a bit of a difference because you all know they're, they're going to find another platform they might not trust it a while. They, they trusted this one for three years and, and then it got turned over. They might be on one now that is being monitored. They they just don't know when you break that confidence, but they will find other ways and the drugs will still come in. So it's just why you got that opportunity for that maximum impact.
0: Chris, can I take you to uh, Australia Day 2016? I think you're offered a position at Commander at Port Stevens. You start there, you didn't know really anyone there at all, Move there with your family. Can you just share with us arriving there and and who you met and and how things unfolded there?
1: Yeah, well, I'd just come up from, uh, I was the staff officer to the deputy commissioner and I was off at the position up at Port Stephens. So, you know, the Port Stephens and the Newcastle uh, rumour mill had had gone into overdrive. There was a new commander and, you know, they're researching you and checking you out. And I walk in there not knowing anybody and they seem to know all your secrets before you even get there. And Newcastle is almost like the Newcastle Police Force. It's a bit different to the New South Wales Police Force. It's... uh, quite remote, uh the way they uh, operate themselves. But yeah, it was Australia Day. I think we only landed there two days earlier, unpacked to the uh the car into the house. And Australia Day I was around at Nelson Bay police station, walking in the back of the police station, there was a barbecue one, there was troops everywhere, there was buses where everyone had come in. Because Australia Day on Nelson Bay and Shoal Bay was quite a big event. I walk in and, and you can almost, you know, it's like walking into a, a country western bar from City Slicker and the place just stopped and <laughs> stared at you. So whale in the <laughs> bay um, so you know went inside the building, uh settled out a of few of the staff and and the first person I remember in the mill room meeting was jeff richardson you know and and Port Stevens always had the nickname of god's waiting room it's uh It's a retirement village, and uh that's the way the crime was also perceived up there that there wasn't a lot of crime, it was quite a relaxed atmosphere and I'd always come from a high impact. I'd been in the King's Trust drug unit, and I'd been in undercover areas. I'd always been fast paced in any theft squad, so it was interesting to see how I was going to go. But nevertheless, I uh, Jeff came running up to me and welcomed me. Go, hey boss, how are you going? Great to meet you. Uh, I'm in the proactive team. There's a cultivist here where you know we we go out, we kick butt, we we lock up people. There's druggies here. There's still a lot of work to do, and you know, still from motor vehicles. We do everything we can to look after the community. And he was just pumped, absolutely pumped. And I went, oh sweet, I've met someone who's a little bit like me who's pumped. So I guess I'd heard so many things about the Sleepy Hollows. Now, little did I know this was going to be my favourite place I ever worked in 30 years. So I finished the shift. I went out and drove around pretty much all night, as I like to do. As in, even as a commander, I like to go out with the troops, go to a few jobs, got home. And it would have been probably two weeks later, we were up at um, Murray's Brewery, myself, my wife and the three kids. And as we're just at the brewery having lunch in the fields, I hear someone scream out, boss, boss. And it was Jeff came running over to me. And I said to Beck, oh, it's Jeff who I told you about, you know, one of the blokes I met. And Jeff came up all excited. He was very much, he was chain of command. He, he very much respected rank, the rank above him, he respected it, let alone a superintendent. He was very respectful. So Jeff came up and said, oh, do you want to come meet my family? So uh, I took my family down. Uh, he introduced me to Margie and Patrick and Aidan, they're two young boys. And um, we sat there, had a beer and later on we drove home and I said to my wife, we're going to be all right. Like we didn't know anyone, but we have just met a good family. Met Jeff and Margie and the boys. We're going to be all right. Um, fast forward a couple more weeks and on the 5th of March, so it was uh, on the weekend and clearly I was on call in better sleep. Phone rings about 11, 11.30 at night and it's one of the inspectors, Al Jansen, who rings me and says, i oh, just got to give you an update, boss. There's a, a pursuit and we've got radio silence on one of the cars, Port 7's 14. I said, okay, what's, what's happened? He said, well, there's, there's been a pursuit going on and one of our cars went out there with spikes to get ahead of it and um we can't locate that car we can't hear it. it's radio silence and i said okay give me a call back when you know more so um you know i went back in bed didn't sleep probably 10 or 15 minutes later uh our rings up again and said we found the car um the sergeant's in the car and he's dead it's hit a tree and um i don't know what i said at the time but you just look at it my wife looked at me she's seen me getting woken up you know three or four times a night for normal jobs and, and i just get into them you turn in auto mode and this one I must have paused and had a bit of a blank look on my face and she looked at me and I didn't say anything and then I just said, who is it? And he said, it's Jeff Richardson. And I uh, just turned to my wife and went, oh, it's Jeff. It's our mate. Tony Blake, we just met. So uh, I go downstairs. Um, you know, it's just the things you remember. It's funny. I remember just getting the ironing board out, ironing a uniform, getting my dress shoes out instead of my boots, putting that on and I have to drive around the corner, literally two or three streets to Margie, uh, wake her up and tell her that, you know, Jeff's been killed. He's not coming home. Luckily, two bloody good sergeants beat me to it who were best mates with Jeff and Margie and they officially did the death notice themselves. I pulled up at their house and um, I could hear Margie from the time I opened the door, went down and, and they said, we've already told her, sorry we didn't wait for you, we just thought we should tell her and, and they made you know, a huge call on that. Um, You know, I went in and sat with Margie for the next few hours, and and we laughed about it later. She said, I knew something was wrong, because I kept bloody dropping tears on your dress shoes, because you had your your polished, fancy shoes. And uh, she goes, I knew something was wrong when you turned up. And it was almost like she hadn't listened to the sergeants, but when the boss turned up and he had his dress shoes on, she goes, the shitted at the fan, I knew something was wrong, even though she'd already been told Jeff had been killed. We sat there, cried together, had a chat together, and then... You know, I had to do the notifications and that's where chain of command kicks in and, you know, you, you go up the ranks all the way to the commissioner's office. Uh, I think the next morning the commissioner flew up uh, with his staff at Raymond Terrace and, or at Nelson Bay, I can't remember where he flew into, took the commissioner around to see Margie, Margie's family turn up and I was pretty determined that I was going to shoulder the, the, the pain of this on behalf of the troops. Because uh, that morning we finished the shift at six o'clock, we went back and we uh, signed Jeff off the roster altogether. Because you start him, you know, it was a paper roster. You sign him on, you sign him off. We completed his shift for him, and gave him three cheers at the end of the shift. That's when the next day the commissioner turned up, met the family, um, and then Margie's family. I took out to the crash site. Margie just wasn't in a state where she wanted to see that crash site, so I took uh, Jeff's dad and his two brothers out there to the scene, um, and from then it just just snowboard. It was enormous. The, the funeral in Newcastle was absolutely enormous. The community rallied together for it. What had happened effectively was there was a, a pursuit with a, a no defender. At that stage, he wasn't known, but he was a, a crook up in that area. Uh, cops were chasing him in a car chase. Uh, they radio, as they do call for anyone training road spikes. Anyone can deploy road spikes. You have to be trained. You have to carry them. Uh, Jeff was standing out the front of the police station at Raymond Terrace with Al Jansen, the inspector, And Jeff said, I've got spikes, I'm trained, I can go. They listened to the pursuit a little bit longer, trying to see which direction it was heading to then, strategically get in front of that car to deploy some spikes. Jeff made the decision that he was going to do it and I was the last one to see him drive off. And what Jeff was trying to do was strategically get in front of that car to find a a safe location. We have a range of stops about where you can deploy them, where you can't deploy them. Uh, Jeff went off the expressway, went off down Lovedale Road, Mist calculated a sweeping left-hand bend and went straight into a tree and was pretty much killed instantly. So that was the, the situation where he wasn't actively in the pursuit. He was trying to get in front of the pursuit to stop the vehicle, to make it safer for everyone else.
0: Well, the story that you're telling, Chris to my is it doesn't matter whether you're a superintendent, it doesn't matter you were the probationary constable. The, the, the toughest job in the police, I think, bar none, is that job, isn't it? Walking up that driveway, knocking on that door and forming next of kin. And, and I can only imagine what it's like when you have that relationship with the family and also with the uh, with the deceased. thats That's got to be up there as one of the toughest jobs you've ever done in the police, I would say.
1: Yeah, look, no one, no one likes the death messages to a point. I like them because you can be compassionate and you can actually help that person through the very first time. But when it affects your staff like that, you see the staff and you see those two sergeants that actually did what they did and went and delivered that to Margie and then you watch the pain of your entire police force um, you know, there's some young kids there that absolutely idolized Jeff. You know, Jeff was their buddy and you just go back to the shift and we sat them all down in the, the shift and just go, this is going to be a world of pain for a lot of people. But, you know, unfortunately also it is something that the cops do really well. They put on a very good funeral and we often say we do send people off with a lot of dignity and respect. And, you know, it was probably, um, I think the following January, February after that, Police Remembrance Day. And uh, we all went down to, uh, we had a whole range of events, fundraisers for Jeff and the family. And then we went down to Police Remembrance Day in Sydney. And Margie was there. And poor old Margie, I think, you know, before lunchtime, we had to slip her a couple of vodkas just to get her through the event because she was going to be shattered. And there's a lot of footage of her and myself standing there at that wall, the Police Remembrance Wall in Sydney, and laying a wreath for Jeff together and having our troops there. And then we went down to Canberra to the National Police Remembrance Wall in Canberra where Jeff was going to be honoured. And his plaque was going to be put on the wall, and the Prime Minister was going to be there. And typical Canberra weather, it was fine as we got in, but it just was blowing sideways. The rain, it was zero degrees. And we sat there, and they tried to put tarps over us, and it was absolutely freezing. We were drenched. And Margie's sitting next to the Prime Minister, he's got her arm around her, talking to her. And, you know, Margie was the show, and Jeff was the show for the day. And we finally finished, and we walked back down. It was mud by this time to the car. And it was myself, Margie, and one of her friends. And we, we got in the car. I'd never been that cold or wet in my life. And I uh, turned to Margie. and said, sorry, Margie, with respect. And I just went, F- you, Jeff. This is freezing. <laughs> and then Margie just went, F- you, Jeff. Put us through this shit. And we just laughed our heads off. It was the most somber moment. We'd just been comforted by the Prime Minister. We'd been crying the whole time. And then we just absolutely laughed our heads off in the car because we were just screaming out at Jeff going, how dare you put us through this? <laughs> so, yeah, but, uh, you know, Margie's um, inspirational. I was only talking to her yesterday just to let know I was doing this. Patrick and Aidan, Patrick's been doing the charity ride from Sydney to Canberra, representing his dad and representing Legatees. So uh, everything, something comes out of something. Yeah,
0: good on you, mate. You're based now in Western Australia. Can you give us a, just a bit of a an overview of, of your professional life now and,
1: and, and, and where that is, Chris? Towards the end of last year, I just decided to, to look at something different and what else is out there for the next. I wanted to make one more career jump. Then I spoke to a friend of mine who works for Cortimentha and at that stage, I, I didn't know much about Cortimentha. So, you know, I, I went and met Cortimentha and, and I said the buzzwords, family-friendly work-life balance. And this partner pulled me on and said, what does that mean for you? And this was during an interview and I said, you mean, good question. The first person's actually pulled me up because we say the buzzwords and motherhood statements, and sometimes you can't back them up. And I thought about it for about 10 seconds, and everything flashed through my eyes what I've just explained to you in regards to Lint, Ironside, Jeff Dye, and a whole range of thousand other different things. And I said, I just want to be more present at the dinner table. When the kids talk about their day at school, my wife talks, it's not white noise. I actually want to listen to it because previously I'm sitting there thinking, okay, it's Ironside, there's a drug job coming in, there's a threat to kill there's a siege going to happen. The phone's going to ring soon and you're just not paying that attention. I said, I'll work my butt for you. I'll work hard for you, but it's just that downtime. And, you know, now I can actually walk across to the, the park and leave my phone in the house. But it's not for every Everyone's not ready to go. So I suppose my theme behind that is, is just, you know, hope's not a plan. Grass isn't always greener and it might be for the job, but it might not be for the person. So it's just an opportunity to say that there is life outside of the cops and it's a very good life but I don't regret anything to do with the COPS when people people complain about, you know, TJF, I don't like the job. I go, mate, it's paid your kids' school fees, it's paid for your holidays, it's paid your mortgage for the last 20 years. What is there you don't like about it? It's just more being positive and reinforcing and just saying, the COPS have so many transferable skills. There are jobs out there. uh, There are good jobs, and and I'm just very happy that I've landed in Quartermentha because they are just different to other consultancy groups.
0: Chris mate, I just want to thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join us Chris you you've joined us from the um, from the studio across there in Perth Western Australia where as you've just said you've transitioned from uh, from 30 years old policing into a, into a new and very exciting environment um, a very distinguished career you know not all that stay in the job for that length of time get to those high level of commission ranks uh, that that you did both uh, New South Wales police and uh, Australian federal policing you know the thing I've really enjoyed about our chat Chris is not it's it's not only that you know the high level involvement with cases like the Lint Cafe Siege and and uh, also that insight into that Operation Ironside but you know it's it's that those human stories those personal stories that that you've told and and you've told them with um, real openness and you know so above and beyond all those high level jobs that you've done Chris is uh, those those very human and personal stories and, and thank you so much for taking the time. To share them with us. Thank you for your 30 years plus service, both here and in Western Australia, and uh, and all the very best to you, Chris. Moving forward. Thanks, Brent. Really appreciate it. Crime insiders detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders. Produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.